Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good morning, church online. Good to see you guys. We are just kind of gathering ourselves here. How is everybody doing this morning? Good. Very cool. It's, well, actually, it's not. It's very hot outside, but it's cool in here, isn't it? Hey, uh, I want to give you about 30 seconds to get up Say hello to somebody, and uh, we haven't done this in a long time, so go for it. Say hello, shake hands, all that stuff, just go for it. Make sure that, yeah, very cool. And Church Online, it's great to have you with us. If you are watching for the first time, I want you to know this is an amazing group of people, and if you ever come, if you're ever in the area, you want to come here, you will feel very, very welcome as people are right now, this moment. All right. So, welcome, welcome. A couple of quick announcements here, and then we will have our time together with prayer. Uh, first announcement is that immediately following the service today, uh, those of you who would like to go get changed or go right from here, we're going to have the picnic in the park. You bring your own food to the park, and we're going to have it at Leslie Grove, I believe it is, right? So uh, if you don't know what that is, where that is, just put it on your, on your phone. You can go there, and there's going to be a bunch of us there. We're going to be enjoying the breeze of the river there. It'll be nice. So come and join us there. And then at... 4.30 this afternoon, 3? Oh, it's going to be earlier today. Sorry, at 3 this afternoon, which is great, by the way. 3 this afternoon, uh, when it's the coolest, we're going to be outside and having mosaic uh, with uh, our young adults, and it's going to be fantastic. Again, it is by young adults, from young adults, but it's for everyone. That's why we call it mosaic. We'd love to have you be part of that. So come and join us at the same place, Leslie Grove, at 3 o'clock, correct? And then also, and we, we're going to have like different um, salads and, and watermelon and that kind of stuff, and you bring your own, we'll have buns, but you have to bring your own hot dogs and stuff, right? All right, cool. And then also, tomorrow morning, men, we are going to restart our men's breakfast at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Love to see you there. We're going to be flipping pancakes and having great, great breakfast together. So we'd love to see you there. We're going to have a great, great time. Charlie's going to be sharing with us. We're excited about that. How about you? Amen. Are you guys excited to be back in church? Wonderful. All right. Let's take a few moments now to gain ourselves uh, a posture of prayer. And as we move into the part of the worship service that helps us to focus on God. Ray? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you for all the blessings that you pour upon us throughout the days and the hours and the nights. And thank you so much for being there. 
we praise your name. And Father, we, we have thanks in our heart for the answers to prayers that you have worked in our lives. There isn't a one of us that doesn't have a broken heart of some sort, maybe a broken body, and yet you have been with us and you have healed us and brought us here together. Thank you. Special thank you for being with John Smith. He's now out of the hospital, Lord. Bless your name. May he recover completely. And Father, we ask a special request today that we might hear something that will draw us closer and closer to you. And dear Father, I close with this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Oh, Father, what a wonderful defense that is. But more, it is the greatest offense. And Lord, we thank you. We trust you. Please pour your spirit all over us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's continue our worship this morning with some praise in song. If you'd stand and join us as we sing, we're going to start out singing about our living hope.
teaching it, but uh, just follow along as best you can. Hopefully some of you have heard it, but uh, if not, you'll be familiar shortly. It's called Remembrance, as you can probably see.
Happy Sabbath. There we go. How's everyone doing? We're doing good? Did we stay cool this week? Yeah, kind of, yes. I hear some yeses out there. That's good. Pastor Sergio, were you cooler this week? I was. Cool. <laughs> if you missed Pastor Sergio's uh, message last week, I highly recommend going and watching it. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start out with prayer. I don't know if you've ever had those weeks where it seems like everything is piling upon each other, but that was my week. So we're going to pray again. You just bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to say thank you for your Sabbath. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. And Lord, I just ask that um, your spirit be upon all of us and that these be your words, not mine. In your holy name, amen. Um, our title for today is Where Are You? And if you've ever been in a space long enough uh, at church, you notice that during summertime, people seem to disappear. And so for all those people that are out enjoying whatever you're doing, we don't say, where are you? We say, have fun. But for those of you that are here, we're going to be talking about a story about this idea of where are you. Now, before we get there, um, I do this every time, um, so I'm going to take off my shoes because when Moses meets God at the burning bush, he says, take off your shoes for where you are standing is holy ground. And I believe that when we come together, that we're standing on holy ground. It's a little harder to take them off when it's summertime. You got the sandals on, so they're off now. So when I was younger, my sister and I loved to play uh, different games. You know, there's only so many games that you can play with two of you. But one of our favorites that we really enjoyed was hide-and-go-seek. And I have a lot of different stories I could tell you about uh, the different games in hide-and-go-seek that we played. For example, the time where I hid in the closet, when she tried to look for me, I'd go this way, and her hand would go here, and then I'd go this way. She was so mad when she finally found me. It was one of my best ones. Or the time when my uh, parents were building onto our house a new room and they hadn't enclosed it yet, so there was no access from the inside yet to this room, and she hid in there and counted as in the house. Not cool, man. Or I could tell you the time where we played sardines. Sardines is kind of the opposite of hide-and-go-seek. Instead of everybody hiding and one person seeking, one person hides and everyone seeks, and then you hide with them. 
And there was a room at the church I grew up in that we had been collecting clothes, and there were bags and bags and bags of clothes, and they hid in there and took us forever to even find them. I could tell you so many stories of times that we played hide-and-go-seek, but probably the one that stands out in my mind the most is probably one of the ones that I'm not most proud of. But I'm going to tell you anyway, because you'll get my point. So uh, I grew up in the country, dirt roads as far as the eye could see. And because we grew up in the country, um, there were very few people that lived around us that were our age. But there was a few kids, and every so often, the neighbor boys would come over, and they'd want to play with us. Specifically, they were my age, and they wanted to play with me. And so they'd come, and you'd see them walking before they even got to the house. And I'd be like, oh, no. Okay, they're coming. Now, before I tell this story, you know those moments where you don't want to play with someone as a child, but your mother makes you? There are a lot of those moments with these neighbor boys. And, and so they would come over, and I'd tell my mom, please, please, I see them coming. I don't want to. Please, please, please. And she'd be like, and sometimes my mom would tell them no. And sometimes she would tell me no. And so I'd go out, and I'd play with the neighbor boys, and we'd play different games until I remember one day we hit on the idea of let's play hide-and-go-seek. But they're at my house. Let's play outside. Good idea. Yeah, so let's play outside. We're at my house. And the best part about being on home turf is that you know the area. You know the best hiding spots on your home turf. You know the spots where they're going to find you, and you know the spots that they would never probably think of looking. And those times that I really didn't want to play with our neighbor boys, they were a little weird, sorry. Um, the times that we really didn't want to play with them, we'd be like, let's play hide and go seek. And I remember one time, uh, my sister and I, there was an opening underneath our house because we were redoing underneath the house and we hid underneath our house. We pulled up the thing and whooped right in, and we stayed there. And I kid you not, they looked for us for almost an hour and a half. And we brought a book, and we just sat underneath the house, and we read. And we hung out. And I remember them calling out, where are you? Larissa, Kelsey, where are you? And they couldn't find us because we were quiet, and we knew the hiding spots. You see, we didn't have a really great friendship or relationship, so we didn't feel the need to tell them where we were, and we just kept hiding. And sometimes they would outlast us, and we'd come out before, before they left. And other times they'd leave before we came out. Not my, not my best moments as a child, but we would play hide-and-go-seek a lot. In the Bible, there's only one instance of the phrase, where are you? It's interesting because you would think that there would be more, but there's phrases like, where are you going? Where are you from? But the simple phrase, where are you, can only be found one time 
in the Bible. We're going to be reading about that one time in Genesis 3. So if you want to get ahead and get ready, we're going to be in Genesis 3 today. If you know the story, and I'm talking about the tree and the serpent, if you know what I mean by that, then you know where we're going. But if you don't, I've got a couple pointers that might help you out. Um, if you hear about a snake, his name's Satan, and yes, he can talk. Um, and he also likes to take other people down with him because he sinned. Um, he's what we call our classic narcissist. Now, if you hear the names Adam and Eve, we're talking about the first humans. And God, I hope you know who that is. That's our creator and someone who's very personal. And when you hear about the tree with fruit, just a reminder, fruit does not equal apples. Just so we're on the same page. So there's this garden made by God, maintained by Adam and Eve, and contains snake and snake on one tree. Are we all caught up? Sweet. Let's go. Genesis 3, we're going to be starting in verses 1 through 5, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it, or you will die. Surely you will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. Like I said, tree, snake, talking snake, Adam and Eve. And we have this moment in history that is crucial to understand. And I feel like if we don't understand this, we might miss something big. You see, Satan is setting up a three-point argument with Adam and Eve. He's saying, you know what? I've got something to tell you, and I'm going to make three points to make it. Point number one, verse one. He says, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's really interesting about three-point arguments is that uh, it's considered the tripod effect. Have you guys ever heard of the tripod effect? The tripod effect is three points of stability. If you have one, it's very unstable. If you have two, it's still unstable. But when you add a third point to it, all of a sudden, it becomes stable. Use the example of a camera. You have the one singular tripod. You can hold it with two hands, stable but not quite, but when you add the tripod with the three, all of a sudden, it's a lot more stable. It's like when you're braiding. The more strands you have, the harder it is to cut three strands. And so three points is the strongest, and we see Satan make this point. He says, point number one, did God really say this? In this moment, we see that Satan is telling Adam and Eve that God is restrictive and unreasonable. That he says, he's restrictive, you cannot, and he's unreasonable. This makes no sense. Satan frees God in this one moment as being restrictive and forgets in that same moment the freedom that God has in the picture. 
It's like someone saying, didn't your parents give you a 10 p.m. curfew so that you're going to miss out on all this fun? Well, if you frame it that way, then yes, I guess you could say that. But if you frame it a different way and say, well, but they gave me until 10 to have all the fun, right? It's a totally different way of looking at something. Uh, growing up, my mom always said that for every negative attribute of someone, there's a positive attribute. If someone is annoying, well, it just means that they're attentive. There's a positive for every negative. And so we see Satan taking this positive thing. God says, you can eat anything but this one. And he turns it on his head, and he says, okay, didn't God say you, you can't eat that tree from that tree? Didn't God say that? And in this moment, we see that this boundary made in love and freedom is all of a sudden made to be restrictive and unreasonable. Point number two. Satan says in verse four, he says, you will certainly not die. When you eat this, you won't. God is untrustworthy. He's a liar. It's okay. You're not going to die. Satan frames God as someone who can't be trusted. Someone who doesn't tell the truth. And in this moment, we see that that's actually not completely true. You see, Satan took this thing, we call it a white lie in today's world, but it's a lie nonetheless. This moment where it's not all lie, but it's not all truth either. And Eve did mention that God said that if they touched it, they would die. So something's not right here. Has anyone ever heard of the term gaslighting? This is one of the first times we see someone being gaslit. So fun fact, if you don't know the term gaslighting or to be gaslit, um, it actually... Um, the definition of it is refers to the act of undermining another person's reality by denying facts, the environment around them, or their feelings. In fact, the fra funny story, the phrase originated from the 1938 mystery, thr mystery thriller play that was then later turned into the 1944 popular movie called Gaslit. And it's a British playwright done by Patrick Hamilton about a husband and a wife's relationship. And the husband, Gregory, manipulates his adoring, trusting wife, Paula, to believe that she can no longer trust her own perceptions of reality. And how he does this, and there's a pivotal scene in, within this play and movie in which Gregory uh, causes the gas lights in the house to flicker by turning them on in the attic. And when Paula says, the gas lights, they're, they're flickering, and asks about it, Gregory insists that it is not happening and it's all in her mind, causing her to doubt her own self-perception. Hence the term gaslighting was, was born. So in this moment we see that Satan is gaslighting Adam and Eve. He's telling them, mm, I don't, that's not actually what happened. This is what God said. 
And Adam and Eve start to question what they remember God saying. Did they remember wrong? Did, did God actually specifically say they were going to die? And they start questioning. I bet you when you saw this up here today, you thought Pastor Fred was speaking. <laughs> gotcha. I remember a couple weeks ago saying, well, I know Pastor Fred's speaking today because he's got the props up. <laughs> and so he plants in them this belief. Got to make sure I'm on the right one, okay? <laughs> this belief that maybe God isn't as trustworthy as you thought he was. Maybe he wasn't as honest as you thought he was. And that third point to make it really strong, we see in verse 5, Genesis 3, verse 5, God knows that when you eat from it that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In that moment, he's saying Satan is selfish. I mean, God is selfish. Satan is saying that God is selfish and he's only looking out for himself. Satan in this moment frames God as holding out. He frames him as self-serving, suggesting that he has a, higher, a monopoly on this higher state of being, that if only Adam and Eve took the opportunity that they could also get to. And they're like, ah. And they're like, look, God gave us all this. And he goes, that's it? That's all he gave you? You know there's more, right? He only gave you this much? And it's the moment of, wait, is there more? What am I missing? You see, sin began with the deception of who God was at his core, the character of who he was, that God is love. And if we can, for a moment, take that down, then we've already won. And so Satan comes from that angle, and he indicates that God is selfish, he's a tyrant, he's a liar, and he's restrictive. And we see this war of words start happening. In Revelation, we get a, a better sense of what was going on and why Satan is coming across this way to Adam and Eve. In Revelation 12, verse 7 to 9, it says, Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. And this great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for war here in this uh, section of scripture is... Uh, i got to make sure I pronounce it right. Polemos. Polemos is where the word politics comes from. Interesting. I'll leave, that. I'll leave that just there for you. You can nibble on that. So polemos means war in Greek. It's a war of words. And so when there was war in heaven, it kind of gives you an indication on what kind of war was happening. Were we talking about, like, battles happening? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. In the Greek, we find out that it's a war of the mind. And there's a war of words happening on earth between Adam and Eve and Satan. And we find that 
once this belief is accepted, that a relational breakdown starts to happen. Let's keep reading in Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 6 through 9 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Cool of the day. Oh, that's like 6 a.m. here. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Satan has made his argument. And there's a lie that has been implemented, that has been believed. In John 8, 44, it gives us a better idea of who Satan is and what kind of person he comes across as being. Um, I'm going to read it really quick. It just says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He's, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John tells us something very interesting about Satan. Notice the connection that he talks about, about deception and desires and deeds described here. When Adam and Eve bought into Satan's lie and they believed him, we see that they start thinking about the character of God. Okay, make sure I'm on the right one. The thoughts of, they start thinking about the character of God, which makes them start feeling a certain way about God that's different than it was before and in turn produces rebellion actions or behaviors of God. We see for the first time Adam and Eve hide from their creator. And God says, where are you? Where are you, Adam and Eve? Not where are you from, not where are you going, where are you? And Adam answers him in Genesis 3, 10 through 13. He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So I want to take a quick jog here and make notes so that we're not misunderstanding this. Was eating the fruit the sin? No. Was it something they shouldn't have done? Yes. But sin is a heart issue that starts in the beliefs, the thoughts, the feelings, and then is shown in the actions. Eating of the apple was not the sin. It was the acceptance of the lie that Satan had shown them. 
and that they had taken. So once again, sin is a heart issue. And we know that it starts in the heart because in Isaiah, the Bible tells us that Satan thought before humans were even born, that he thought in his heart, I will be like the Most High. That there's this jealousy that is produced, this proudness of who he is and his beauty. But it starts in the heart. In this moment of sin, we see that there's two different kinds of relationships that are broken. We see a vertical relationship that is broken. That God and humanity are separated. Because the wages of sin are death, and God is eternal life. So we see that there's a separation vertically. Because they no longer believed in the integrity of God's love, they ceased to trust in him. And that relationship was broken. And we have a horizontal relationship that was broken as well. When given the chance to take responsibility, what did they do? You did it. Mm-mm. Wasn't me. When God asked Adam, Adam turns and points to Eve. When God asked Eve, Eve turns and points to the, to the Satan, to the serpent. Sound like any kids we know? That was me. <laughs> so we see this horizontal relationship being broken. When asked to take responsibility, Adam and Eve start pointing fingers at everyone else but themselves because the natural impulse to defend themselves had taken hold. This sin. And we could just leave it here. And this could be a really awful moment, and we could end the story at the end. And it wouldn't very feel very good, would it? This broken relationships, we've got distrust happening, we have all these different things going on that don't really feel great. But thankfully, the story isn't over. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Enmity. I feel like it's uh, in the Finding Nemo movie, the N and Enemy. That's what I feel like when I say the word enmity. Enmity is the state or feeling of actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So it's that constant hostility towards someone or something. And so in this moment, when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and he's talking about Eve, who's the mother of all living. He says, I'm going to implant within you, a hostility towards each other, towards evil. I'm going to put a desire of justice here for you, an inclination to resist evil, and a longing for restoration to original state of innocence. If you had the chance to restore the earth to no sin, how many of you would push that button? I would, absolutely, in a second. 
God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the one. I'm going to put this longing for justice, this longing to go back to have that restoration of innocence. And I'm going to do it between your offspring and hers. I'm going to send salvation to you in the form of a special human, this offspring. And in this offspring, this enmity between you will take on full form. And it's going to be a war to end all wars. He will crush your head. Crush. I don't know if you've ever had your sibling sit on your head before, or a friend. It hurts, does it not? Oh my goodness. My sister and I, we were those rough and tumble kids that uh, drag them out. And the, uh, she would sit on my head when we were growing up. And it hurts. It says, he will crush your head. This is a painful process. This is not something to be taken lightly. He will crush your head. The offspring will conquer Satan and do so on behalf of humanity. But in the process, you will strike his heel. You will not go down without a fight. You will wound them. And in this moment, we see the first promise of not only redemption, but of a promised one. Where are you? There's a reason this is only said once in the Bible. For the first time, humanity is scared. They're unsure. And yet, they have this reassurance of God's love. In this moment of fear, there are so many ways that God could have approached the situation. He could have smited them out of existence. He could have snuck up behind them and said, boo. That would have been my favorite. He could have done any number of things the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. But what did he do? He called out to them and he said, where are you? Now, I don't believe for a second that God didn't know where they were. The Bible tells us a lot of other times that he knows all. So I don't think it wasn't the fact that he didn't know where Adam and Eve were. I think it was something completely different. That God showed his humanity and his character and called to them for, to the depths of their soul and said, where are you? God showed that his character doesn't change. Today, tomorrow, forever, it does not change. That God is a God of love. Now, if you want to talk about the wrath of God, we can talk about that a different time. And that is an awesome subject. If you've ever um, been interested in that, I encourage you to uh, research it, talk to us about it. Uh, the wrath of God has some amazing points to it, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about something a little bit different. We're talking about the calling of God. And it's important to notice the reaction to the first sin in humanity. God didn't yell at them. He didn't punish them. He called to them and said, where are you? Where are you? One of my favorite promises in the Bible um, 
is how many times it says that God is with us. And one of the first times we see this happen is in Deuteronomy um, 31.6, where God is telling Moses, he says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The interesting thing about this promise is then Moses then takes this to the people, the Israelites, and he says, be strong and courageous. And he sends this message to the next. And the next time we see this, Joshua, Moses' predecessor, is saying, be strong and courageous. And this is promise that is going on time and time again. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. God calls him, calls us to him in our moments of scared, our moments of unsure, and our moments of fear. God says, it's okay. Where are you? Where are you at? Let me know. Talk with me. I've got you. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Where are you? Where are you today, church? Are you scared? Unsure? Are you fearful? God is calling out. He's asking you, where are you? Where are you, Larissa? Where are you, Sergio? Where are you, Fred? What you doing? Where are you? He's calling you back into relationship with him. Back into a relationship with others. He's asking us to restore that which was broken. God is calling us back into a, into a relationship that has no gaslighting, that doesn't make us question it has no lies. He wants to be honest and truthful. He wants to be real, and he wants to show us his love. The questions that we have about God, he says, I welcome them because I want you to ask me. I want you to depend on me, and I want us to have that relationship. Let's restore that relationship, God says. So let us not war with words with each other. How many times has someone said something and they're just like, oh, really? You're going to say that? And I let these words affect me instead of walking towards that person in love like God did towards us. Where are you? Where are you at? Where's your mind? Do you need to restore something that's broken? I know it's not easy sometimes. I mean, look at our world. It's broken. But I know that we have a God that is always walking towards us. We have a God that does not let us get lost to just go. We have a God that wants to know where we're at, that he cares about each and every one of us. We have a God that has had a plan from the beginning. He says, don't worry, I've got you. I know, I know you messed up. But it's okay. We'll do this together. We are not alone. And we are promised that over and over and over. God says, I will be with you. I will be with you.
God goes before us and fights for us. If it had been us that had been our head crushed, I'm certainly that would have been the end of it. But it's not. Jesus took the battle so that we didn't have to. And God calls to us and says, where are you? And I want to say, Lord, here I am. I'm here. I messed up. I'm sorry. But God, with you and with only you, can I do that? Church, I invite you today that if there's something that is not right between either you or God or you and others, that you spend the time to fix that. God gives us the example and says, go, where are you? Find them. Make it right. I know it's not easy. But we have the example of what it could look like, this perfect relationship. And I invite you to make it right, to tell God, here I am. I'm right here. Let's do this together. Go ahead and stand for our last song.
strong and courageous. May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Go in peace. Happy Sabbath, church.